A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I don't know if you've heard, but we have a book coming out. Finally, finally, after all these years. It's great. It's fun. You're going to love it. It's called Stuff You Should Know colon, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things. Yep, and it's 26 jam-packed chapters that we wrote with another guy named Nils Parker, who's amazing and is illustrated amazingly by our illustrator, Carly Minardo. And it's just an all-around joy to pick up and read. Even though we haven't physically held in our hands yet, it's like we have, Chuck, in our dreams so far. I can't wait to actually see and hold this thing and smell it. And so should you. So pre-order now. It means a lot to us. Uh, the support is a very big deal. So pre-order anywhere books are sold. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles Chizzy Chuck Bryant. And this is Stuff You Should Know. Um, yeah, that's all I got to say. I think this is super interesting, this uh, anti-diet movement episode. Mm-hmm. I do, too. I'd heard a little bit about it. Every once in a while, we'll say something, and one of our listeners will write in and be like, hey, you guys shouldn't be saying that, or you guys shouldn't be talking about, you know, trying to lose weight or something, because it, it, it shames other people indirectly, and, like, you should check out the anti-dieting movement. So all of you people who've ever written in with a suggestion for that, this one's for you, because uh, I believe all of you are the ones who, who brought that uh, to my awareness. Yeah, so the anti-diet movement is a response to. Um, there's a lot of pieces to it, and we're gonna we're gonna go over all of them. But it's a response to diet culture mm-hmm. uh, in the world, especially in the United States, and a response that basically says we don't think diet culture is healthy, uh, literally healthy for your physical health, right. and also not healthy for your mental health and for the well-being of an individual. Uh, we don't think diets work. We think we have uh, proof and studies that show diets don't work. Mm-hmm. And we think that there's a better way, which is to accept food as something that is to be enjoyed and accept your body. And there's a lot more to it than that, but that's sort of the broadest stroke. And society goes, what? <laughs> I tell you, man, it's when you look at how we are uh, – you know, I don't want to uh, – maybe brainwashed is too strong of a word. No, no, no. But how humans and Americans are brainwashed into thinking there is only one way right. to live um, and only one way to live that way. Right. It's pretty interesting and hard to undo. And there's – and we're all of us, every single one of us in America and I would guess in most of the West as well are subject to kind of this two-pronged attack of – about weight. One is the idea that you just don't look as good when you're overweight. And then two, the idea that you're not as healthy when you're overweight. And this anti-dieting movement rejects both of those. Yeah. They they so their whole thing is and it's really it's worth kind of restating here because it's tough to wrap your head around because of the way that we've all been brought up for so long that the anti-dieting movement isn't like no, no, no. All you have to do is cut meat out and you're fine. You can do everything else. There's nothing like that. It's not only not only don't diet, it's throw away 
your dieting books, stop following dieting blogs, reject the the standard of beauty at like the this small kind of vaguely underweight um, standard that we have in the West. Um, and stop listening to people, including your own inner voice that 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 makes you feel ashamed when you crave or eat certain foods that, all foods are on the table. There's no such thing as bad foods. And you can just stop thinking about weight and food. Those two things can be decoupled for the rest of your life. You're free, basically, is what they're saying. You're free. Go fly, little bird. Go live your life. Stop thinking about being overweight. Yeah, and it all comes down, and this might just, some people may just think this is the craziest thing they've ever heard in their life. Right. Um but what they're saying is is something called you should embrace something called intuitive eating, mm-hmm. and this came around in the sometime in the nineties. Uh, there was a book written by Evelyn uh, Trebol and uh, Elise Resch called Intuitive Eating: colon, mm-hmm. A Revolutionary Program That Works, and this was in nineteen ninety eight. And this was basically the idea that. We've been looking at this cycle happen for years of restricting your food, getting on a diet, losing weight, gaining it back, sometimes gaining back even more weight, Mm -hmm. doing this over and over and over. It's not working. It's not good for people. It's not effective. Uh, It it doesn't make you healthier to go through this weight loss and weight gain cycle. Mm. And you need to stop listening to these external controls, whether it's the media or your parents or your spouse or partner or yourself. Mm -hmm. And you need to start listening to your body and eating what your body says to eat. And here's the important part. Stop eating when your body says it's full. Right. And so they kind of put all these things. So intuitive eating is kind of the central focus of anti-dieting, but it's not one and the same. Anti-dieting is a, a larger umbrella movement is the best word for it that includes anti or uh, intuitive eating, but it also includes a kind of a militant opposition to um, fat shaming of any sort, of any kind, and also kind of believes, not even kind of, overtly believes that any weight loss goal is negative, that it's it comes 100% from that being brainwashed culturally. So we'll talk more about the anti-dieting movement in general, but like we should really explain the 10 principles of intuitive eating that, um, that Tribble and Rush put together. And we should say one other thing too. Uh, this is not a diet. So so when you're hearing these things, don't think, and then you do this and you lose weight. No, that's out the window. That has nothing to do with this. This is about your relationship to food. And then number two, these people are no slouches. Um, Tribble and Rush are both registered dietitians, which are um, certified, regulated um, professionals who know what they're talking about with, with nutrition. And intuitive eating is widely almost universally embraced by dietitians and nutritionists as well. So just kind of keep that mindset when you're hearing these 10 principles of intuitive eating. Yeah, and before we actually list the 10, it's worth pointing out that part of intuitive eating is, uh, part of the foundation is the fact that they say, hey, listen, look at your kids. When you're born and you're a little baby mm-hmm. and you don't know anything, you're just a dumb baby. <laughs> and you grow up to be a dumb little toddler, mm-hmm. your body tells you when you're hungry and you eat, and your body tells you when you're full and you stop eating. And I see that with my five-year-old. I'm not hungry anymore. All right, stop eating. Yeah. And it's that easy. And the argument for intuitive eating is that, uh, and you know, partially the anti-diet movement, is somewhere along the way we lose that as adults or as you know teenagers even. Uh, because of this onslaught from the media and from everybody talking about your weight, your weight, your weight, and your health, and you got to be skinny. Mm-hmm. And we lose these, we literally lose these biological triggers that say, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. Those just go away. And the idea is to kind of retrain your mind and body to get back to that state you were when you were a dumb baby. Right. Yeah, because I don't even know if it goes away. We're just trained by diet culture to ignore them. Oh, they um, say it goes away. Yeah, no, I like know. I, I don't stop. know if I agree with that one. But I, do. I, I, but the 
the but the key is is that that it's being one way or another we don't have that intuitively anymore because diet culture has come in and replaced that with no pay attention to the calories or ignore the fact that you're hungry because you're you're limiting portion size they're saying ignore that that advice right so here are the principles the 10 principles the first one is uh, we already kind of covered it to reject the diet mentality mm-hmm. uh, basically it's just saying you know these these diets um, don't deliver lasting results and you got to remind yourself of that Right. Um, there's also the next one is honor your hunger. It's so sweet. They have honor in here a couple of times. But they're basically saying that when you are hungry, you should eat and you should pay attention to not only um, what your body's like, the fact that your body's telling you you're hungry. So, so go ahead and eat. But um, what your body's asking for, too. Now, your body, it's important to say, is what they're saying to honor. Not you're sad, so go eat the ice cream. Right, which comes That's later. That's a different with, thing. That comes with, later. Yeah. Uh, what else, Chuck? There's make peace with food. Yeah, that is basically unconditional permission to eat. Um, you know, we're tempted by the Twinkies and the ice cream and stuff like that. And they're saying give yourself that permission because that's sort of one of the keys is once you rewire your brain – you're not going to want the Twinkie for lunch because it doesn't have that allure. Mm -hmm. And it's probably not going to make you feel great physically. And maybe you need to do that a couple of times to realize, oh, boy, I don't feel so hot after eating ice cream for lunch and only ice cream for lunch. Exactly, yeah. So so they're saying just like there's there's, – if you – are on the couch and you're like, oh, those Oreos sound good. Should I, shouldn't I? They're saying, get rid of this. Should I, shouldn't I? If you feel hungry and those Oreos sound good, you just get up and you eat the Oreos without a second thought. That's the point of making peace with food, giving yourself permission to live like that. That's right. The next one, number four, is challenge the food police, which can be everything from uh, your friends and family or partners to your own, and I think many times, your own inner voice. I, probably more than any anything that inner voice, um, and one of the things with the food police too is um, they can come about in ways that are much less direct than than calling them the food police sounds. The like food police sounds like somebody who's going to tell you to put down that Twinkie because you you know a, a, a moment uh, on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. People who say stuff like that to other people that's definitely food police kind of stuff. But the, that same kind of uh, guilt or shame or reinforcement of feeling guilty or ashamed about food can come from people who are talking about their own dislike for their body right. or their weight because um, it makes you kind of sympathetically trigger and uh, examine your own, especially if that person is maybe has, um, weighs less than you do. Because if they're worried about their weight, well, geez, that means you should really be worried about your weight. Or right. they're worried about eating that the grilled chicken on their Caesar salad and you're tucking into a, a chili dog. Should you really be eating this? So the food police, in this sense, can kind of come from a number of different directions. Defund the food police? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the next one is respect your fullness. And this is a big part mm-hmm. of it because they're saying eat when you're hungry, mm-hmm. but they're not saying eat till you feel sick. Right. They're saying you need to listen to your body at all times. When it's hungry, feed it, and then maybe eat a little slower, maybe pause during that snack or during that meal mm-hmm. and say, all right, body, are, am I hungry now or am I bored or stressed out? Mm-hmm. And, and is that why I'm continuing to eat? Like mm-hmm. check in with yourself uh, in the middle of a meal yeah. to see, body, do you need fuel right now? Or, uh, you know, it, it's something going on at work. And this Twinkie makes it a whole lot better. And so that kind of um, reveals like one of the big principles of intuitive eating, which is mindfulness. Sure. Like you're not supposed to just kind of zone out and watch, you know, TV while you're eating ice cream because then you look down and you've eaten way more ice cream than you've even realized, which means that you didn't even enjoy that ice cream. You want to be more mindful when you're eating, in part not just to monitor how much you're eating, but to enjoy it more. That's part of the whole thing as well. And then for— That's the next one on the list, in fact, is satisfaction. Hold, okay, hold on. I've got one more thing about respecting your fullness. So there's this Confucian teaching that the Japanese call harahachibu, which means belly is 80% full. And the, the 
kind of rule of thumb among Japanese people is that you eat until you feel about 80% full because then your food kind of expands in your stomach and by the time um, you're done eating, it, it eventually becomes 100% full. So you don't, you don't overeat until you feel sick and it's actually extremely satisfying. It just takes, again, that level of mindfulness. That's right. Uh, and that number six was satisfaction, which is, you know, enjoy your food. Uh, assess that taste and the texture. And how does that feel in your stomach? Uh, is it a gut bomb or does it feel good? Uh, right. And I think also, Chuck, if you, <clears throat> if you stop and think about a lot of the ultra-processed foods that people have in America, you will find it doesn't make you feel very good. So I think the authors are aware that part of that mindfulness is going to lead you to a different, some different kinds of foods than the ones that that people traditionally think of that they're just going to eat when food, when they don't feel guilty about eating food, you know? Right, like they sit back and they're like, no, 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 go ahead and uh, yeah. chow down on the ice cream. And then they sit back and go, watch this. Right. They're going about- to be happy for a few minutes and then they're going to be like, oh, I got a stomachache. I think ice cream is exempted from that. I know. I keep talking about ice cream. Ice cream's it's fine. It's the best thing in the world. Let's all leave ice cream alone. <laughs> but I think, you know, there's there's been plenty of stuff that I've eaten where I realized later that it's not actually good. It doesn't actually taste good. Yeah. It's not actually satisfying. It actually makes me feel kind of bad. And then the the, the icing on the cake of, of— Ooh, I love icing on cake. Disappointment. Yeah. Icing and ice cream are exempted. <laughs> but the icing on this cake of, of um, just feeling kind of duped is that I probably saw an ad for that food within the last couple of days. Oh. And that ad worked its mojo on my head. And that's why I ate it. Not because I like it, but because the ad got me. And then the, the food itself is designed to hijack your limbic system. So I ate more and more and more. But it, when I stopped and really thought about how it made me feel, I didn't feel good about it. I didn't like that food. And I've actually given up Popeye's chicken as a result. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Uh, honoring your feelings is the next one. Uh, without food, um, you know, Check in with yourself emotionally. How are you? Are you anxious? Mm-hmm. Are you lonely? Are you stressed out? Are you mad? Like, what are your food triggers and why are they there? And try and resolve some of those, those issues without using the food. That's a big, big part of it. I think that is the part of it, dude. I think most people who are overweight are overweight because they eat emotionally. Maybe I'm. Maybe it's over confirmation bias. I'm a huge stress eater, huge, um, and I guess it's possible I could just be presuming most people are like that. But I suspect that that is the key to all of it. Is if you can figure out that food is an addiction to you, um, and that you're using it as an emotional crutch that that will make you identify what you're actually trying to deal with or cover up or run from or make your make make yourself feel better against using food and that is the key to decoupling it and when you can do that you can do all this other stuff i would guess is just kind of like a, a, a cascade of easiness from that point on i think that's probably the hardest part uh number 8 is respecting your body and this is the idea that you know you want to love your body and accept your body and feel good about what what they call your genetic blueprint Mm -hmm. and the body that you have and maybe you were meant to have and having a realistic expectation about what you can and should look like. That's a big, big part of it. Um, The ninth one really kind of stands out to me too, Chuck, is that um, exercise. They're they're saying like exercise, but the the thing to know about exercise is you don't exercise for weight loss. That's not what exercise is for. It's actually not that great for weight loss. It's good for improving your mood and making you feel better. And it can help with number eight, with you just respecting your body. You can just feel good about your body without even really losing any weight just from from exercising from time to time. And they don't even say you necessarily need to exercise. They're just saying move more. Yeah, don't be which, sedentary. Which is a big one. But but that was a big life-changing thing for me too is learning that exercise is not about weight loss. It's about boosting your mood and, and sense of well-being. Yeah, it feels good. It does. It feels really good. But if you do it to try to lose weight, it's very frustrating and counterproductive and you'll eventually give up exercise probably. Uh, And then the last one, honor your health with gentle nutrition. 
Uh, and this is the idea that you're making food choices um, that you you like the taste of, but also honor the health aspect. Um, sure, you might want to have some cookies and chips from time to time, mm-hmm. but focusing on those you know non-processed foods that that also do taste good. That's sort of the route that they suggest you go. Right. So so that's and that's intuitive eating. Although if you if you go back to number um, uh, three. Technically, number 10 could be canceled out. Like, if you're just like, no, I really hate asparagus. I hate vegetables. I love Oreos. I'm just going to eat Oreos. They're like, okay, that's fine. As long as you're not feeling guilt about it, as long as you love your body, as long as, you know, you're listening to yourself and, and the cues your body is telling you, whatever. That's that's just part of it. It's it's go to town. Just love food and love yourself is kind of the message, which is a pretty pretty good message that I think a lot of people want to hear. I think so. You want to take a break and then talk about um, the the idea that this is rooted in science? Yeah. Okay. We're going to do that eventually, everybody. We'll be right back. Learning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you should A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stuxnet. Who's Stuxnet? Say it one more time. Stuxnet. I don't know. You know it's Stuxnet. Is that in this? Stuxnet. Stuxnet. It's a great name. You got to quit Stuxnet. That's the name of it. <laughs> I know. It's a great name. All right. Stuxnet with an, e- with an X. <laughs> All right. So uh, intuitive eating. Uh, this has been, you know, sort of a, a new way of thinking, um, that's come about over the last, like, probably 10 or 15 years, maybe a little bit more. Uh, but it seems like it's really gained steam in the last 10 or 15. And the idea is that uh, there are all these bud- buzzwords that we are sort of ingrained in us, dieting, uh, losing weight, getting healthy. Uh, they've changed that to – or changing from diet to things like getting healthy or, or it's a lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're trying to avoid some of those earlier buzzwords – but if you're an anti-diet proponent, you're saying, you know what, this is all the same stuff just because right. you call it a lifestyle now and you're talking about getting healthy rather than losing weight or going on a diet. It's the same size. It's just in different clothing. Yeah, it's it's here's the standard and everyone needs to reach it no matter what. And that really flies in the face of this idea that well, that seems to be one of the tenets of intuitive eating and definitely of the anti-diet movement, which is that every person has their own different basically genetic weight set point and that that is what your body's going to stay at uh, no matter what. Um, and if, if you try to contravene that set point, you might be successful for a little bit, but probably 
the vast majority of people are going to suffer a relapse, I guess. And they'll gain that weight back over time. Give them enough time, they'll gain that weight back. And then the problem is they might even gain even more. And so there are some diets out there that have been demonstrably shown to work, like Weight Watchers, now called WW, like Jenny Craig, now called Jenny Craig still. JC. Um, although I didn't know it was Australian, so I guess it should be Jeannie Craig. <laughs> How was that? That was great. I don't think it was great. I, I thought all of a sudden I was uh, talking to Russell Crowe. <laughs> right? So um, those have been shown to work. The problem is this, that you are signing up for a lifetime of paying attention to what you eat. Like, that's how it works. Like, it'll work, but you have to keep it up for literally the rest of your life if you want to keep that weight off. So, um, and then other diets just don't work at all, or they'll work temporarily, but then you just go right back, and then you gain some weight. And they seem to have figured out, at least according to intuitive eating dietitians and anti-dieting movement uh, proponents, that there, there seems to be some biological response by the body to dieting, and it's almost this comedy of errors that just makes everything even worse when you try to diet. Yeah. I mean, the idea is, you know, if with any diet, pretty much you're restricting food in some way, whether it's mm -hmm. a kind of food or the amount of food, right. there is almost always going to be some amount of hunger involved, even though they all say like, with this diet, you'll never be hungry again. They all say that, but that's sort of the idea with any diet is you're restricting yourself. Mm -hmm. And anti-diet proponents say, you know what? When that happens, your body is wired to want to eat and survive. And when you're consuming less food energy, uh, that's going to create that energy deficit, and that's when you're going to be burning those fat stores, and that is how you lose weight. Mm -hmm. But your body is also going to trigger a biological starvation response that is going to mean you're going to fail eventually because your body's saying, "I got to eat. I think I'm. I think I'm lost in the middle of the woods all of a sudden." Right. And go eat. You're hungry. You're hungry. Yeah. You're more hungry than you would have been. Right. So this can very, very easily lead to binge eating because you're not just hungry. You're you're hangry at this point. Yeah. And so when you finally do give in and start to eat, you're going to eat more than you would have if you were just plain hungry, right. right? That's a huge problem with it. But it seems to be even more, um, more nuanced than that and that the body seems to, to enter um, basically a kind of starvation mode where once it does manage to get you out of that, um, or a starvation response, where it does get you out of that diet and back into eating, um, what, it, what you just done is is scare your brain it seems like so where your brain says well oh, i i didn't realize that food scarcity was going to be an issue in our lifetime so I, now that i realize it is i'm going to take that set point of adiposity which is the amount of fat you would generally store on yourself i'm going to inch it up a little higher so that that my person can store more fat because we need to make sure that if this ever happens again, we have plenty of energy stores. So when you come out of dieting, you can actually gain more weight than you had that before because of that, because of that adiposity set point being increased. And then as a result, as a response, you end up dieting again. Your brain says, it happened again. So your adiposity set point might be set even higher. And so you'll gain even more weight back. And it's a phenomenon that we're just starting to understand that I can't tell if it's just theoretical or an interpretation of evidence, but a, a term I've seen for it is called diet-induced obesity. And it's just fascinating to think that dieting can actually make you you heavier than you would have been if you hadn't dieted at all. Yeah. I mean, here's a thing I don't think we mentioned yet. When your body goes into that biological response that says, oh boy, you got to eat now. It's also saying you got to eat something that's really high in calories. Mm -hmm. It's like, don't reach for the, the Triscuit, friend. You need that pimento cheese on white bread. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah. Yeah. Palmetto cheese. You ever have that stuff? I've got some in my fridge right now, buddy. Man, that's the best. It's hard to go back to anything else, to be honest. I don't even know there was anything else anymore. Although <laughs> it's there really, was really good. There's a listener uh, who makes um, Queen Charlotte pimento cheese out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Is I it don't good? Know if it's Queen Charlotte. Um, it's extremely good. Yes, it's like high end pimento cheese, but it's it's not like 
snooty pimento cheese. It's like <laughs> really, really good pimento cheese. Do you, uh, do you get the palmetto? Do you get the jalapeno or bacon or just the plain? Just the uh, jalapeno. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not, I've not had the bacon. I'm trying not to eat pig. Yeah. Not for any, any health reasons, but just because they're supposed to be really smart. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't get the bacon because Emily doesn't eat it, and I don't— I just get the plain. I don't get the jalapeno either because I don't love super hot things. Although, it's, and it's not that hot. It's um, it's becoming really apparent that Emily and I are basically one and the same person. I, I have drawn up divorce papers for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. From her or me. <laughs> we can't get divorced. Okay. All right. Good. So, um, we, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, your body wants even like high high-calorie foods to pack that weight back on. And it's going to pack on more than last time because you've scared it into thinking that it's going to possibly run into food scarcity again. So that's what you're doing is you're basically forcing your body into a starvation mode to lose weight, but your body responds by saying, like, I'm two steps ahead of you. You're not going to win this game. And then you're eventually going to keep gaining more and more weight back and dieting more and more. And, And here's the other big part of it too, Chuck, is that you're going to end up on this disappointing treadmill where you've wasted all this time and energy and emotion into something that's just going to frustrate you. And the anti-dieting people just say, stop. Well, which could trigger what leads you to eat to begin with, which is stress and anxiety about your weight. Right. Uh, And then there are people like uh, Christy Harrison, author, uh, she's a podcaster, a food psych and author of Anti-Diet, colon, reclaim your time, money, well-being, and happiness through intuitive eating. Colon. Uh, <laughs> she's also a registered dietitian, so she knows what she's talking about, too. Yeah, so she says, you know what, this, um, your nutrition, your physical activity, smoking, alcohol, uh, any kind of behavioral health determinant is just about 30% of your overall health anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people hang everything on this, like that, like an ideal weight, ideal weight means I'm healthy. Uh, and, and of course we think people should quit smoking. I'm not saying, Hey, go out and smoke anyway, but there are people that say all of this stuff combined is only about 30% of your health. And I'm sure your genetics have a lot to do with it. Um, somebody may, uh, somebody's anxiety and stress level may be so high that they Mm -hmm. have, you know, a steel cable running through their body at all times. And they may be thin, but they may drop dead from that heart attack in their 40s because they're not addressing other factors in their life other than food. Right. Um, and that's it's kind of rich, too, for the diet culture to be like, well, what about health? What about health? Because diet, there's some pretty unhealthy diets out there. Um, I ran across a few that have come and gone over the years and then sometimes are revived. Have you heard of the Sleeping Beauty diet? What's that? You take a nap every time you're hungry? You take sleeping pills at night, so (laughs) you sleep longer, so you're not awake to eat. Uh, Don't forget deal a meal, which wasn't necessarily bad, but it was definitely Mm, calorie restrictive. Richard Simmons, very colorful, cute little... um, cards or something? Yeah. Uh, The grapefruit diet, the cabbage soup diet, which works. Grapefruit diet was very 70s. Severely, and the cabbage soup diet, I didn't realize this, dates back to the 50s. And I think it, my it dad works. Did that. The thing is, it's calorie restrictive, so you're entering that 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 starvation response, and it'll work if at first. Um, it's just you you eat more when you finally get to eat again, um, and then there's this one is I just can't believe this. This is a real thing, Chuck. The feeding tube diet. I didn't even want to look that up. I did, and it's exactly what you think. Yeah, I figured. A doctor, a doctor. Um, like, I guess a Dr. Nick type, um, fits you with a nasogastric tube that delivers about 800 calories of nutrients directly to your stomach. And um, under the severe calorie restriction, you will shed the weight. But again, you're going to gain it all back and then some probably when you start eating again. So When did the they idea, do that? That's still going on. Really? Yes. Ugh. So the idea that you, that, that, not dieting is unhealthy is awfully rich coming from people who undertake some of these extraordinarily dangerous diets. Like you can get a kidney infection from that feeding tube diet. Like a lot of stuff can go wrong. But there are some things that that do exist in the world 
that you have to kind of consider. And one of them is the obesity epidemic, which is tough to get around. But astoundingly, the anti-diet movement has been like, we got this. Yeah, I mean, the anti-diet movement says there is no public health crisis going on mm-hmm. uh, unless you're talking about the diet culture, burn. Uh, they're like, there is no obesity epidemic. If you look at the average weight of Americans uh, compared to the generation before, it's about 6 to 11 pounds more. And maybe what this has done, if you look at the BMI scale, which basically says there are three types of people, uh, or I guess four, uh, underweight, normal, overweight, and obese, uh, that might, that 6 to 11 pounds, uh, which amounts to 10 extra calories a day um, mm-hmm. over time, that might nudge you into a different category um, from overweight to obese or from normal to overweight. Mm-hmm. But BMI and mortality are just, uh, and this is, this is what they're saying, is that that's causation. Like we've, we think we have evidence that shows that being obese and having a higher BMI doesn't mean you're going to die sooner. Which is, that's astoundingly contrary to the to common sense, it seems like, or at least the common perception of the link between being overweight and being dead, basically. Yeah. And there, apparently the, 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 um, the holy text of anti-dieting uh, seems to revolve around this 2006 study by a, a law professor named uh, Campos. I don't know what Campos's first name, but Campos um, did a survey of the medical literature and tried to find the, the, the correlations between BMI and mortality and, and seemed to find that there actually is a correlation, but it's not where you'd think that people who are in the overweight range or the low range of obesity apparently don't seem to have much more of a risk factor than anybody who's in the normal weight range as far as mortality goes. You have to get into the, um, the, the, the far side of obesity and then the far side of underweight um, to get to where you're actually at risk of dying. So that's super contrary to um, to what most people think. Uh, and again, like there's this is a 2006 study by a law professor who did a survey of the the literature on nutrition and weight, and um, so you can take that as you will. But at the same time, if it is correct, it's still to me. <sighs> I don't think it discounts everything because if people have gained 6 to 11 pounds on average compared to just a generation before, that that's not terribly much. I mean, it seems like a lot depending on how, I guess, inculcated into the diet culture you are. But it it, it seems like that's taking a snapshot of something that we're still in the process of. Um, and then just saying, don't worry about it because it's just this much, not, well, how much more is it going to be? And is there danger if we reach that point, if everybody ends up like the humans in the, in Wally, you know? Um, and it's kind of akin to saying like, well, the it's just the living room that's on fire right now. There's the whole rest of the house is not on fire. Stop your moral panic about house fires. It's very similar to that. So I'm not saying that it's wrong and I'm not saying that, uh, it, it doesn't help the anti-diet movement's um, ideas, but it, it, I think that just to say, like, bam, case closed is is a little glib. You're being glib, Matt. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> we say that in our house a lot. That was when Tom Cruise and Matt Lauer uh, interviewed Tom Cruise <laughs> oh, yeah. about Scientology. You're being yeah. glib, Matt. That is about as Tom Cruise a thing to say as anyone's ever said. And look what happened to Matt Lauer. Yeah. He got cruised. <laughs> you want to take a break? Oh, my gosh. Have we not taken a second break yet? No. Let's take a break, and we'll come back and talk about the big elephant in the room right after this. Burning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you should A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, 
the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stuxnet. Who's Stuxnet? Say it one more time. Stuxnet. I don't know. What that you is. know it's Stuxnet. Is that in this? Stuxnet. Stuxnet. It's a great name. Yeah, yeah whoever. Whoever. Stuxnet. That's the name of it. <laughs> it's a great name. All right. Stuxnet with an, <laughs> with an X. So the elephant in the room is nutrition. I think yeah. uh, this is the glaring thing that if you've been listening so far and uh, and disagreed with a lot of the anti-diet movement, you're probably saying, you can't eat just Oreos just because it makes you feel good. You got to have nutrition. The body needs nutrition. And here's the thing. The body does need nutrition, but the anti-diet movement says, just unwire your brain on um, this moral judgment on food. And if you get to intuitive eating, you're, what we're saying is listen to your body, and if you eat these just Oreos for lunch, you're going to feel like garbage later on. Right. And if you're listening to your body, your body is going to tell you that it wants nutrition, and it wants good vegetables, and it wants whole foods. And if you're really in tune and you're really listening and you're not just uh, saying, oh, well, I'm just going to give myself permission because I'm an anti-dieter to do whatever I want and I may be doubled over in pain every afternoon from eating garbage food, <laughs> uh, that means you're not doing it right. That means you're not listening to your body because yeah. your body will crave nutritional health. Right. You're just being a smart aleck at that point. That's right. So um, there, there's that's kind of like the big the big thing among registered um, dietitians and nutritionists that basically says like, you know, yeah, we're in favor of anti-dieting and we're definitely in favor of people being body positive. Um, there's something called um, healthy at every size um, that was founded by uh, Dr. Bacon, of all people. Isn't it healthy at any weight or is it any size? Any size. Oh, okay. Yeah, size. Health at every size. Health by, at every uh, size, right. Linda Bacon back in 2010. Um, and so most most dietitians and nutritionists are like, of course, we're all very much in favor of that. But, like, nutrition is important. And I'm sure there's some people out there that are like, yeah, you would say that. You're a nutritionist. But it is – there's just I, – I just think that there's no getting around the idea that you need – healthy whole foods. I think the problem is the anti-diet movement says that sounds awfully close to there's such things as good foods and there's such things as bad foods. Right. And we reject that outright. Yeah. And the nutritionists are saying, no, there really is such things as foods that are better for you and your body and are going to make you feel better when you eat them than other foods. So technically, sure, there is such thing as good and bad foods in that sense, but not shame it's just this is going to provide more benefits for you than this. Yeah, and, you know, there is a real uh, danger to uh, – and the people that are, I guess you would say, against the anti-diet movement say, like, listen, we can't let this thing – we're all for body positivity, but we can't let it go so far in the other direction mm -hmm. that you're diet shaming and you're saying, you know, you shouldn't eat – like you were saying, you shouldn't seek out nutritional foods like – 
don't let the pendulum swing so far in the other direction that you're brainwashing people into thinking that they can just eat garbage all the time and be healthy. I don't get the impression that that is super prevalent among anti-diet movement people. I don't, I don't think it is. I think it's more that it seems to be targeting any kind of weight loss. And that seems to be a division in the anti-diet movement itself. Right. To where um, if you if you want to lose weight, or even if you don't say you want to lose weight, but it's evident that you did, there's a, a model named Ashley Graham who was um, a full-figured uh, Sports Illustrated cover model um, a couple of years back. And she, like, lost a, a few a few pounds but it's still definitely plus size and full figured and proud of it. Um, but she 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 faced a huge backlash as a result of that, where people were like, "I'm not a fan of yours anymore because you lost you lost weight and you've betrayed us all." So there's there's this division between, well, no, I feel better when I shed a couple of pounds and I have no problem with with wanting to shed a couple of pounds. And the other side is like, you can't even think that way. That's diet culture brainwashing you. We reject that. And we reject you basically too. And so there's, it's just the internet's been injected into it, which is the problem is what it seems like. Right. Because people should be able to make their own decisions on their own bodies and how they feel it, it best suits them without being uh, piled on on the internet and on either side. And I and I get too also that people are like, well, no, that like when you talk about that stuff, it makes me feel shame. It triggers my shame. But the problem is, is like you you can't control other people. You can only control yourself and your response to other people. And forcing other people to behave in a way that makes life easier for you is not how things work. Like you have to just focus on yourself and your own response and your own positivity so that it is strong enough and robust enough that it can withstand hearing other people talk about how they wish they could lose some weight and being like, huh, you know what? I don't anymore. I'm truly body positive. I truly love my body. Um, that would be the the true body positivity that, that people are trying to achieve there. And it would solve the problem of fighting, infighting among people who agree on almost everything else, you know? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a it's so hardwired, it's really hard to undo. It takes a lot of work. Uh, there was a study in 2017 of intuitive eating uh, among retired female athletes, and they said they felt very liberated. And uh, when they, you know, made that shift to food freedom, for lack of a better term, but they said it, quote, necess uh, necessitated an effortful process of recalibration during which athletes had to relearn and reinterpret their body's physiological signals mm -hmm. of hunger and satiety. So, like I was saying earlier, how that you know you you lose these signals from when you were a baby. That you a lot of work has to go into relearning those signals. Um, and these are from these female athletes of, uh, and this isn't necessarily the same thing, but there's a big movement now among former NFL players to get their health back into shape. Mm -hmm. And there's a long list of these men who have come out saying the NFL, like, kills you. Uh, the weight that you have to keep on, the amount of food that you have to eat to be, uh, you know, an offensive or defensive lineman. Mm -hmm. And the before and after pictures of some of these guys that are like 6'4", 320 on the offensive line that are now like 6'4", 225. Wow. It's unbelievable. And they're just like, I've never felt better in my life. Huh. And I can walk around now and I don't feel like I'm, you know, carrying a sled behind me. Right. Uh, because the NFL is just like, no, nah, man, you got to, you got to weigh 325 pounds if you want to be on the line. Yeah. And then I think also the opposite way is for people who are in sports and have to be severely calorie restricted, you're basically taught to have a, an eating disorder right. that you have to unlearn when you stop playing sports, too. So it kind of goes both ways. I think the key here is for everybody, for athletes, for everyday people, for people who are overweight, underweight, the 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 cross that all of us are bearing, if you'll allow me to get a little religious in my metaphors here, um, is that we all have to stop being so obsessed with food and how we, we look and our weight. And it's just, we're all, almost all of us are on the same road together. And it's good to remember that we're on it together, traveling together. Let's stop squabbling with one another. I definitely honor my hunger. <laughs> <laughs> you got anything else? I got nothing else. 
Okay. Um, thank you for listening, everybody. We hope this helped. We hope it didn't set anybody off. If it did, email us, let us know. We apologize in advance. That was definitely not our intent. Um, and since we said that, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this uh, Axe Murder and Family or Axe Murdered Family. Hey, you guys are the best. I stumbled upon <laughs> your matcha that ain't just tea podcast a few weeks ago. And I've been down a Stuff You Should Know rabbit hole ever since. Well, welcome nice. to the show, Jenny. Yeah, welcome. Love hearing about new listeners, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, most recently, I've been really into your shows about axe murderers. They're fascinating. Mm-hmm. And get this, I've discovered that members of my own family were killed by an axe murderer or two in the 1800s. Wow. There's a whole book about it titled Murder Along the Kong." Murder Along the Kong." <laughs> I thought it was more... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, they're called the infamous Change Water Massacres of 1843. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kastner family, which is my family line, was sleeping one night when two men who were attempting to rob them came in and murdered the mother, uncle, and two-year-old sister with axes. They had lured the father outside, killed him, and threw him in a ditch right before that. What's amazing is that there were two survivors, little JP and his older brother Victor, who were asleep on a cot behind the doorway. The murderers had no clue the boys were there, and they were left un- uh, unharmed and slept through the whole thing at oh 6 gosh. and 10 years old. Wow. Uh, what's interesting is that I'm not sure if the two men convicted were killers. Uh, were the killers. More than two other men were originally arrested, so it's kind of sketchy. You guys should check it out. Thanks for all you do. You're a comfort, especially during this strange season. That is from Jenny Farnan. Thanks, Jenny. That's awesome. We're probably just Farnan. I get. I like Farden, <laughs> the destroyer, the matcha drinker. Um, thanks, Jenny. We appreciate you listening. Can you imagine those two boys, six and ten, being like, "Hey, who's up for pancake?" When they wake up, <laughs> is it too soon? It's an 1834 murder, Chuck. And the other one says, "No, nah, I'd rather have waffle." <laughs> Oh, boy. Right, we'll probably in. edit this make you part feel out <laughs> a little bit, yeah. We might cut this. But if we don't, you guys can let us know how much we suck. Um, write to us via email at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. So get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. 